Welcome to another episode of the Tactical Leadership Podcast, where we focus on building better businesses. I believe in order to be the best leader that you can be, you must be willing to be the first follower and have a servant mentality when you're in a leadership position. If you want to be the best leader that you possibly can be, be sure to stay tuned and listen to industry leaders and hear how they built winning cultures in their own businesses. Hey everybody, welcome back to another episode of The Tactical Leader. Today I have the pleasure of speaking with Brendan from Master Talk, and we're going to talk about how he helps ambitious executive coaches become top 1% communicators in their industries. Before we begin, I want to remind you this show is brought to you by Nightly Productions. If you're a podcaster, a content creator, or just want to enhance your marketing materials, head over to nightly.productions and find out how we can help you create tactical content that delivers. Brendan, welcome to the show, my friend. Hey, pleasure is mine, Zach. Thanks for having me. Man, I'm super excited about this because there's so many things to unpack here. And um, you are a friend of somebody that was a guest on the show. Her her episode's actually going live this week as we're recording. And um, Hannah Williams introduced us as part of this young generation that's making waves, making moves in the world. And I want to give the audience an opportunity to know a little bit about you, where you're the founder of Master Talk. It's a public speaking coaching practice that started to help executives um, in order to help executives and entrepreneurs become top 1% communicators in their industries. And you also have a popular YouTube channel under that same name, which really highlights some of that expertise. Before we dive too far into how you got there, just tell us a fun fact that the audience might not know about you. Yeah, absolutely. One fun fact about me, Zach, is I speak three languages, but I can karaoke in eight. Yeah, you're going to have to give us more than that. That is a fun <laughs> fact. You can karaoke in eight languages. How, yeah, how is it just that you memorize the song and you roll with it? You got it. So, so the trick is you listen to the song multiple times and eventually you figure out how to pronounce the words. And, you know, funny enough, a few years later after doing that, and I still love karaoke, that actually became one of my public speaking tips because it really helps you when you articulate. So let's say I switched languages and I said, Ohio gozaimasu, genki desu ka, which is hi, how are you? And good morning in Japanese, or nasio, which is hi in Korean, or bonjourno komestai molto bene ilai, which is hi, how are you, good, and you in Italian. I don't speak any of those languages, but because you can, I can switch really quickly and my pronunciation is good, it helps me articulate my words. So essentially what happened, Zach, was... Uh, when I was in college, I used to do karaoke a lot. It's just most of my friends were in the Asian community and they started playing songs in Korean and Japanese. And I didn't know how to karaoke with them, but to fit into that social circle, I needed to figure it out. So that's what happened. That's pretty cool. So how often are you uh, karaoke and uh, rocking the stage in that capacity? In that specific capacity, I haven't karaoke in a while, but in, in a homely capacity, capacity every single day i'm, and I'm always nice. thinking in between meetings that's awesome man i i love that that's a really fun fact and kind of an interesting little aspect but it highlights the value you're bringing into the world with master talk and how you're helping people communicate and i, I want to know how you got down that route where um, obviously we talked about it there's communication tools there's a piece of authentic relationships that you're focused on then really communication kind of focuses on creating that impact with in between people and as leaders it is probably the number one thing that you really have to polish in order to have the empathy to be a phenomenal leader but let's go all the way back to what i say all the way back let's, let's set the stage first how old are you for the audience to understand that you're still young and driving forward on this one yeah absolutely so i'm currently 25 and i started coaching when i was probably 19 
So you're talking, you already have six years of experience at this, right? And it wasn't that you were just coaching in a small capacity. You're talking McKinsey, Bain, IBM, PwC, EY, some monster fortune companies, right? You got it. So, so the context behind that, Zach, is when I went to business school, I did these things called case competitions. Think of it like professional sports, but for nerds. So while other guys my age were playing football or soccer or something else that's really dangerous that I'm clearly not built for, as you can tell by looking at me, I did case competitions, which is the equivalent of professional sports, but for presentations. So I presented hundreds of times. And the reason these competitions exist, because every time I talk about them, people go, wait, is this actually a thing? Executives from top companies come as judges to business cases, to business problems that they currently have. And they have people in their early 20s pitch solutions to those problems. And the reason these competitions exist is because those executives want to recruit the top talent from each of those universities where they say, oh, that person I want to work with, that person I want to work with. And that's why most of us did case competitions because pretty much everyone I grew up with ended up getting three to five job offers out of university. It was more a matter of just picking the one we wanted to work for. But let's just say I got a bit more obsessed than the just getting a job at a company. Nice. So I'm looking at this, it's the John Molson Competition Committee, where you did these different things um, in that capacity, where you're really focused on casing your capabilities there. When you're leaving college. What did you study in college? Were you in the communication realm? You know, funny enough, Zach, I studied accountancy. You know, I worked at PricewaterhouseCoopers as a, as a financial accountant, and I pivoted to being a management consultant at IBM post-grad. And from IBM, I went to start my own business, MasterTalk. So obviously, I would say the corporate construct was not within the realm of what you wanted to focus on overall. You know, it's interesting. I never wanted to be an entrepreneur until very recently. It was it was never in my blood. I'm not I'm not the guy who goes and builds lemonade stands or buys a gum for a dollar and sells it for two or so, you know, the typical Gary V entrepreneurship rise up story. I was gonna say I've heard that story once or twice. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I'm I'm what you can call the quintessential anti-entrepreneur. I, I thought entrepreneurship was for people who couldn't get jobs as executives because you have a guaranteed salary. And my my parents brought me up, raised me up in Montreal where I'm from on minimum wage salaries. So for me, education, and for most of us really, and being an executive is the way out of poverty where you get a job that pays 60 to $80,000 out of university, especially in Canada where you don't really have student debt. And then you work there for five, 10 years and you grow up to a couple hundred thousand dollars a year. So that was the goal, Zach. It wasn't to become an entrepreneur, but uh, things happened for the better and I ended up changing my mind along the way. That's kind of an interesting thing where you're talking about, I know you're up in, in the Quebec area, right? You got it. So it's an interesting thing because in in America, we deal with that. We deal with parents that are, you have to go to school, you have to get a job, you have to you know work that nine to five grind. Did you get that from your folks? I mean, you're up in Canada, but also you have a different heritage beyond what we've seen in America in general. Are you fighting through that at some point or are your parents pretty supportive of, of this shift? Yeah, definitely, Zach. I, I would say for me, 
there, there was definitely pushback in entrepreneurship because in our community, right, especially in the South Asian community, getting a job is, is, the, is the ideal situation. And if I'm being perfectly honest, I think for most people, getting a great corporate job is the answer, including me. You know, I always used to say in university, I wanted to be the best number two in the world. And people would laugh at me and say, well, why don't you just want to be a CEO? I said, well, if you're not, if you're not equipped to be that number one person, if you don't have that vision, you're not driving the, the change, you probably shouldn't be CEO unless you have a really good idea. But what ended up happening when I had the idea for MasterTalk is I didn't just quit my corporate job and start working on MasterTalk right away. I call this side hustling comfortably. It's kind of a weird tactic that I always recommend people. I had a very cushy corporate job before I, I went into entrepreneurship. I wasn't this guy who was doing the dish. I mean, I, I've had those jobs in the past, but when after I graduated university, I wasn't the guy who said, oh yeah, I just need to work at a coffee shop and Uber and make this entrepreneurship thing work. Like, I was like, no, for the first time in my life, I have a paycheck that is more significant than anything my parents have made in their lives, and I could retire them. Why would I want to quit this? But over two years, I found mentors, coaches, and I was able to replace most of my income. And that's when I made the jump for entrepreneurship, which was only a few months ago, after two years of side hustling. Nice. So that, that side hustling comfortably is an interesting aspect where people are really worried about that, uh, making that shift, because that's a scary jump. It's a scary leap of faith in yourself. But um, you've made that jump. And I find it interesting you're talking about uh, being the best number two in the world, because in a lot of ways, um, a Del, old Del Carnegieism is sometimes the best leaders are that first follower and that that really, really good number two, because that's what supports a leader. What do you see as being now that you've made that shift and now you're stepping into that forefront? What do you see as being that number one characteristic of a leader that you really want to exemplify? Well, that's a great one. I would say for me, the number one trait that, that I look for in leadership is empathy. That's definitely the most important one where you're learning other people's perspectives. You're focusing on what their goals are, what they want to achieve, whether they're your clients, whether they're your customers, whether they're your employees or colleagues that you work with. And by always maintaining a 5149 relationship with them, this is what Gary Vee calls giving them a bit more than you take and you keep managing those 5149 relationships with everyone, that's how you achieve the goals that you want in life. But if you don't focus on those people and having them achieve their goals first, why would they stay with you? Because they want to work under a, a great leader and the best talent will only work with the best people. Yeah, I think that's a phenomenal aspect. And I think empathy is something that people talk about a lot, right? But how often do you actually see it, especially in the corporate world you were in? Did you ever really see a leader that was empathetic like that? You know, I was very fortunate. Maybe it's because I'm Canadian that most of my the leadership teams I've worked with are absolutely exceptional. I'm not just saying that. I got I got really lucky with, with the people that I ended up working with. But I think that the lesson for all of us and how we can be a bit more empathetic is, is a lesson I teach my clients, which is how do you listen better? You know, a lot of people we say on shows, you know, Zach, you need to listen better. Brendan, you need to listen better. What does that actually mean? What that means, in my opinion, is responding more with questions rather than statements. So more of the times when you have conversations with people, it's usually statement, statement, statement. Well, this is what I think, Zach. And then after Zach goes, well, this is what I think, Brendan, versus, hey, Zach, why do you believe what you believe? Why is that important to you? What are some pieces of your perspective that you feel I haven't yet well understood? 
So notice how when we're responding more with questions, we automatically become better listeners and we end up being more empathetic. But the ratio of questions versus statements is not good enough for most people where it should be mostly questions rather than statements. Interesting. And and that questions aspect, is that where you really find it to be kind of enhancing that communication capability for leaders where they have a better understanding of everything so that the as a leader, you can fully grasp before like decision making gets involved? Yeah, absolutely. So, so a good way of understanding this is the ability to ask great questions is one facet of communication. So you can look at communication like a multi-prism, right, where it's like a diamond with different angles. And one of those angles, absolutely, is the ability to be empathetic and ask the right questions so that you get the right information expertise from the people that you hired you trust to do the work but then there's other areas that of course we're going to get into the show which which i think are going to be a lot easier for people to get a result in right away like public speaking technique and that's something that you're obviously teaching a lot with your organization tell us a little bit more about your organization as a whole and where people would come and find you and look for you and get some of this coaching and mentoring yeah absolutely you know for me Zach, the mission of Master Talk started long before I started a business. It was how do we create a world where every single human being is an exceptional communicator? Like my my goal in life is I have the belief that the next Elon Musk is a seven-year-old girl in Cambodia or in some part of the world. But because she can't afford public speaking services, it's, I believe it's my responsibility to create YouTube channel and videos where anyone can access this this information for free. And then as the YouTube channel was growing over the last three years that I've been doing this, I ended up getting a lot of executive coaches that I then apply the same frameworks I teach at my channel to them directly. But yeah, I would say most of my clients these days are generally middle managers of companies, generally the technology space, and they're also entrepreneurs and coaches. So it's definitely been a fun experience helping them navigate the challenges of communication for sure. Which doesn't really dictate uh, an introvert, you would think maybe an introvert seeking out more capabilities in the communication realm, or would you say they're like closet introverts or like myself, I really identify as an extroverted introvert where at the end of the day, I want to come home and kind of just chill on the sofa, right? Is that the type of mentality you're seeing? Or is it those that are in the middle management that want to become upper tier, maybe C-level executives? You know, that's a fun question because I, I generally get a mix of the two. There, there's definitely the go-getter, the personal middle management, let's say at IBM, who wants to become a senior level executive and says, well, I need to invest a lot of my money so that I can get there a lot faster. But there's also the person who is a senior technical developer at a technology company or a shy introverted business owner and coach who wants to put themselves out there a bit more. But what's fun is those two archetypes get to meet each other because it's a group program. And then they work together as a team. And despite their differences, they learn a lot from each other. I said, I know part of the, the content, you put a ton of content out there. It's like every time I pull up LinkedIn these days, once we connected, I'm, I'm seeing you all over the place. And um, one of the more recent ones you put out were top three tips that one for people that want to become professional speakers, which is a totally different realm. But the three tips that you really put out there, be willing to practice that same talk hundreds of times, care so much that it hurts and get coaching and mentorship for somebody who's built a speaking business like yourself. Kind of give us the dichotomy because being a professional speaker is totally different than just being a top communicator. Give us the dichotomy there 
and why somebody might want to be a professional speaker in that realm. Yeah, absolutely. That's a fascinating one, man. So I would say the big difference between a professional speaker and a top 1% communicator in your industry is that a top 1% communicator in the industry is really focused on the work that they do. So I'll give you an example. Let's say you're a career coach serving a specific niche. Well, the context of that problem that we're specifically solving for at our organization is if you get put into a room with 100 other people who are career coaches in your niche, the goal of our process is that you walk out the number one person by far, by a long stretch. That's the context of that. But the context, and that applies that if you're an executive at a company, you compare yourself to other technology. Let's say you work at IBM, you would compare yourself to other executives at Deloitte, Accenture, McKinsey, et cetera. But in the context of professional speaking, that's more for individuals who want to be thought leaders, whether it's on the executive side, where they're speaking at industry conferences and events, about their products and services or about the future of X industry that they're a part of, or it's in the context of being a coach or a thought leader influencer who wants to share ideas to the masses, like a motivational speaker. So that's the big difference between the two. And that thought leader aspect, is that really where you drive people toward is like, if you want to get your word out, your message out, your X, Y, and Z out more to position yourself as a thought leader, professional speaking, is that vehicle to get you there? I personally think so. But I also am of the belief, especially when I was talking to Hannah, right, the person who introduced us to, that you should be creating your own stage. I think that's the most important thing. So that way, no one, you're not asking for permission to be on other people's stages. And if you have the knowledge, you have the expertise of what it takes to be successful, you'll end up being successful. And I'll give you an example that you just touched on, Zach, which is around you know the fact that I post daily on LinkedIn. I think exploring that will help some people. I'm an absolute maniac when it comes to content creation. Like I create content on YouTube, like my content is done for the, for the year of 2023. Like I'm working on 2024 right now. Like I've already written like years in advance and LinkedIn, I'm probably six or seven months ahead of my content creation schedule daily that I post daily only because I'm new to LinkedIn. Like I only started taking it seriously three months ago or else I'd be years ahead as well. Why am I taking my brand so seriously from a content creation perspective? Because the biggest difference of what I do that most content creators don't is I think about my personal brand in decades rather than days. Most people just create content for the sake of doing it. They try and get to that next post. Whereas the question I always ask myself, whether it's in the context of communication, thought, leadership, or depending on whether or not you want to grow your business, is who are you going to be on social media in 10 years? And when you ask that question, you get a very different answer. Will Brandon be in 35? If he's already coaching executive clients now, what will happen 10 years from now? Thinking about that future and optimizing that from a content creation perspective today is what allows you to outlast your competitors. Which thinking in those terms, I mean, you're talking decade. That's crazy to think about the amount of content you have to create along that capacity. What's the relevancy that maintains across that? Is it content you're creating that is like time tested and just approved like Del Carnegie in his um, how to win, uh, win friends and influence others. I mean, there's a public speaking aspect of a lot of what he teaches. And that's been literally decades like you're talking about since he's written that. Is that kind of the goal where you're like, this content is going to be communication is communication is communication. And you can speak on that for that long of a, a time frame. You know, you know, it's funny. I usually say this at the end of an interview, but since you brought it up, right, the word insane is actually very appropriate to describe me. I have a saying, Zach, where I always say, 
be insane or be the same. If you want to be like everyone else, that's totally fine. But if you want to do something important with your life, you want to do something meaningful, especially if you want to be an entrepreneur, insanity is really the only path to follow where you need to follow your own unique belief system about how to drive an outcome, regardless of what everyone else is saying. Because if everyone is telling you it's a bad idea, it's probably a good one if a small group of people believe in it. And it's those insane qualities. You know, I always say that some of all of your unique gifts, right, that make you crazy is actually what your uniqueness is, right? So the sum of all the crazy things about you is what is your uniqueness? It's what is the gift, the, the uniqueness that you are that you should be sharing with the world. And then in the context of the other point that you mentioned with, with Dale Carnegie and how do I create content for long periods of time? For me, the thought process that I have when I think of decades is I want evergreen authority leading content. So I'm not the kind of guy who's going to post a beam or a prank. So because most of my content is evergreen, for, for those who don't know what evergreen means, it just means that lives for a long period of time. I'm incentivized to just create all my content up front. And the other trick that I can give people and how you create a lot of pieces is you just get a question. So get a question from an audience or write down the top 10 questions that your audience would ask you and make a video on each question. I just did that at a factor of a thousand questions instead of 10. And that's an interesting point because it's something that is similar with like this podcast for me, where you're talking about platform, you're, you're on your YouTube channel. To me, this is, I've never been a YouTube guy. So to me, the podcast world, as soon as I started listening to podcasts, I got fascinated with that concept, but I know a lot of clients, a lot of people I talk to talk about how impossible it is for them to come up with something to keep talking about. Like that's the biggest concern with people. And one of my limiting beliefs originally was like, I don't know what I'm going to talk about over and over and over again. And here we are nearly 250 episodes later, but it's the, one of the realization points for me was it's not about me creating the topic. It's not about me coming up with the idea. It's about Brendan has this idea that's fascinating. I want to learn more about it. So you're usually literally using that same type of uh, mentality of you want to know what the audience has questions about. So you answer those questions. You're not coming up with necessarily the topics. The audience is helping you to learn more of what they want to hear more about. And then you're talking about it and helping find those answers for them. Absolutely. Right. It's, it's kind of like going to the gym. It's a muscle that you build over time. And what's great about YouTube is it's by far the hardest social media to be successful on. So if you practice that muscle on that type of platform, it gives you this invincibility when you start creating content on other platforms. So for example, if a YouTube content creator is successful transitions over to LinkedIn, which I did a few months ago, the, the muscle is a lot easier because all I do really is I repurpose all the stuff I made years in advance on YouTube. And I just copy paste it on LinkedIn because it's just text posts there. You don't have, you don't need to have a production team. There's no need for lighting. There's a bunch of, there's a thousand considerations on, on YouTube, maybe a hundred that you don't need to consider on other social media. So yeah, absolutely. Yeah. You got to look a lot prettier on YouTube, which is one of those <laughs> reasons why I'm a podcaster. I was always told I have the, uh, the face for radio. So to be perfect. Um, I love a good podcast instead, but YouTube is one of those things. Kind of give us some insights on that one, because that one is, like you said, it's, it's the toughest, right? So you're not, not trying to conquer the easy, easiness of Facebook 
well, you're, you're a little bit younger. There's this thing called MySpace way back in the day um, where we had a didn't really have those types of object, objectives on social media. You didn't really see that type of stuff. And as as the years have gone by, you know, we've we've developed Facebook and Instagram. And it's really the, a huge form of communication in and of itself among our generation. And it's one of those where do you see the value of building a YouTube, building a social media platform to that capacity? And how do you effectively, and I use that term, that word very specifically, because effectively communicate on social media is a totally different set of uh, concerns and problems that most people just throw that stuff up there and they don't really understand how to communicate. So how do you master YouTube like that? Yeah, absolutely. So, so I think a good way of starting with that, Zach, is, is why is YouTube so important? Because a lot of people write it off now because the platform's saturated, there's too many videos, we can't be successful. But they're not looking at YouTube in the right lens. So the way I've always seen YouTube is it's a content library for thought leadership. So if you post one video a week for 10 years, you have a content library of 520 videos. So whenever somebody finds you on a YouTube channel, they, they get to learn from you. But the other piece that not many people talk about is this idea of status roles, right? So one of the reasons why we are on social is to build up our credibility and our authority so that other people either buy our products and services, spread our ideas or buy our books, whatever the outcome is that we desire, from being on social, YouTube knocks out all of those things on a front because let's say you're pitching yourself on a podcast and you're sending a, another podcast episode you're on, that doesn't work because the person on the other end is getting pitched 25, 50 times and they don't have time to go through a 30 minute episode. But if you have a successful YouTube channel, even if that YouTube channel has around 10,000 subscribers or even a thousand, if you share a single YouTube video and you have like five or 10,000 subscribers, you immediately have instant credibility. Because people look at your video and go, oh, wow, this person has a very successful YouTube channel. Whereas if you have 100,000 downloads on a podcast, no one really knows what that means, even if it's a very impressive number. So the second reason why YouTube is relevant is because of the status associated to being a YouTuber. Every time I go to a live conference, it's not about you know me running around saying, oh, I have a YouTube channel. But rather, when I say I do... People watch and go, oh, this person, I want to start binging that person's content, and they're able to build trust and authority with me really quickly. And then the third piece is for those of you who really want to build long-term personal brands, I think YouTube is absolutely essential for most people, especially if you're creating unique thought leadership, because it's in a, in a, a way for you to create content over a long period of time where that content lives forever. And that YouTube is one of the few mediums that allows you to do that besides maybe podcasting and blogs where something you created 18 months ago is still rolling. I have a video right now that's getting me 750 views a day that I'm not even touching because YouTube is ranking that video for me in the search results. Nice. That's definitely a huge piece of it. And um, I, I like that you've done that with YouTube because it's one of those you haven't really heard much about. I mean, you have the the viral folks, right? The people that just catch that Insta fame and people absolutely love it. And it's like, oh, I can go do that. But it's not an easy process, right? How did you learn about all this? What What's a good resource you'd recommend just in general with everything you're doing for the audience to kind of go and like, this is a good tidbit, a book, a, a podcast, a YouTube channel that you've really invested in that you've gotten a lot of interest from? Yeah, definitely. I mean, there's definitely a lot of resources, but I would say the most important thing, Zach, beyond that, and I'm happy to share that too, is the best way to start a YouTube channel is just to take out your phone 
make a five minute video every week and see what happens. I started my YouTube channel on my mother's couch three years ago with the phone and no editing and no knowledge whatsoever about how to make YouTube videos. I just realized there was a gap in the market. People needed public speaking information. No one wanted to share it for free because speech coaches in, in the business, and I'm no exception, right? They're, they're expensive, right? They charge a lot of money for their time. So because of that, they're not incentivized to create free content. So that's why I started making videos. And then over time, and I, it sucked, like I, I didn't really like the process, but I just kept doing it. And then as I got better, I started building that muscle for YouTube. So I'd say the most important resource is invest a little bit of your time to just create a video, do it for three weeks and see if you even like it. In the same way, I would never write a blog. You might not want to start a YouTube channel. But in terms of resources that helped me a lot, I would say Sunder Leonard Juicy is really good on YouTube. I think she's an absolute rock star in how the YouTube algorithm works. Graham Stefan is also a big motivating factor for me. He was a real estate agent in his mid-20s, started making YouTube videos, and now he does exceptionally well on the platform. I think those are other pieces. And then the other piece that I forgot to add before that I think is useful for business owners for YouTube is think of the YouTube channel as the final process of an RFP. So let's say you're bidding work against five other competitors for, let's say in my case, public speaking services. Other social medias open the door for you and YouTube allows you to close the door. What do I mean by that? So let's say somebody, find a prospect finds me on LinkedIn as an example, and they say, oh, I want to work. I need public speaking services. So they're probably going to talk to me and five other people to see what is the best coach that they'll work with. But since I'm the only person who has a, a long form YouTube channel, that prospect can spend a lot more time getting to know me and getting a lot more value from me by just spending 30 minutes on my YouTube channel. Whereas every single other person, my competitors, that prospect has to spend a lot more time finding that specific podcast episode that they interviewed on. So what YouTube allows you to do, even if you don't have a big following, is that it allows you to share your expertise in a quick, efficient process for you to close business in a way that none of your competitors can. Man, I absolutely love that. And I think that's um, phenomenal, phenomenal resources, because I think that's something that, People talk about Facebook and, and Instagram and, and want to focus in that world. And, and you're really the first one I've had on that's talked so heavily about YouTube. And I appreciate that because it really sets the context of like, it is a great resource of video. Um, you know, they, they say content is king, but I think uh, video content is queen. And, and chess is, if you know anything about chess or um, in, in the military world, they talk about um, infantry being the, the queen of battle. The, the queen is the most effective piece, right? So you talk about video content it is the most effective way to get that message out there because just sitting here looking at you and talking on Zoom, I, I talk with my hands. Obviously, there's those inflections that you won't get across the body language aspect that is so key to communication. And I love that you're setting that context out for, for all your clients and for our audience. But I'm really, truly curious with everything you're doing in the world, every aspect of this effort you're putting forth, becoming a thought leader, teaching others to be a thought leader, what is the legacy you're wanting to leave on the world? Yeah, beautiful question, man. I think for me, the, the biggest piece is I want to democratize communication. I think the challenge with Dale Carnegie's work, even if I'm a big fan of what he's done, is he was born in the wrong time period of history. He wasn't able to document his knowledge and thought leadership in a medium that we want to consume it. So I'll give you an example. If you're writing books on communication, that's great. But the best way to learn how to speak is to listen to somebody else speak. 
So it's very unfortunate that we weren't able to get Dale Carnegie's YouTube channel, to get Dale Carnegie's appearance on a podcast. And luckily for me, I was born in the right place at the right time where, you know, all of these social medias are coming up. I don't have to ask for permission to, you know, create stuff. So for me, the, the legacy is how do, how does the, like, basically, I want the next geniuses of our society to all be exceptional communicators. The next Elon Musk, the next Jeff Bezos, the next Sarah Blakely, all of those, because we don't know who those people are. But as long as they're all exceptional communicators, that will move society a lot further and faster. So for me, I, I really want to be the Seth Godin of public speaking, where even if I'm 65 years old, I still want to keep pushing the thought leadership of what's possible so that we can impact more lives in that area of genius. And I got lucky that I found that genius really at a young age. So now I have a lot of time, hopefully, knock on wood, to cultivate that genius and, and share it with the world. That's, that's really the impact and the legacy I want to make. And another tip I can give as well that is a bit morbid, but has helped me, because I'm sure a lot of you are probably wondering, why, why is this person who's so young uh, talking in this way and explaining ideas in this way? There's an exercise I did that will help most of you, but I can guarantee you most of you won't do it. And the exercise is writing your own funeral speech, taking time and really writing down. If you die tomorrow, what would other people say about how you lived and what you did and what you valued? And when I wrote that speech, when I was 22, it gave me a lot of clarity on who I wanted to be and how I wanted to show up in the world. And I, I think that's huge. And I've done that exercise and it does put a context around, which is where my, my thought towards legacy, why that question really came about, because it's like, what are we doing today if you're not thinking about what's going to be left tomorrow, right? And another great book, um, Simon Sinek, Start With Why, is great. That's a starting point. I've really shifted that to ending with why, because legacy is that thing that at the end of the day, like you said, writing your funeral speech, that is deep. And if you really write it in a capacity of how you want people to talk about you at your funeral, it's no different. I, what I've heard is, you know, what's going to be said on your headstone? What's that thing that people are going to write? That is a really terrifying but exciting thought because that means you still have, you now have that path to take to write that speech. If that's what you want said, well, now you know you have to take actions towards that. So I love that you have that as your your piece of a, of a challenge, because that's huge. Absolutely. And I appreciate that, man. So I, I want to give the audience an opportunity. You have all this amazing content out there. You're, you're doing great things. And you're coming back for Tactical Friday to kind of give us tips on how to get started in this realm. But I want to give the the audience an opportunity to connect with you, reach out to you, get some of this content from you, go ahead and give the audience where, where can we find you? Obviously YouTube gives a YouTube channel, but how is the best way to communicate with you? Yeah, absolutely. Definitely the YouTube channel. It's called master talk in one word, go check it out. All my information is free. There's no pitching there. So go enjoy it. And take advantage of the free resources I have there on communication. But feel free to also connect with me directly to I answer every single one of my DMs. So LinkedIn is probably the best place. And I'm sure Zach will post up a link of my LinkedIn profile. Just connect with me. Say you found me on the podcast. I'm always happy to, to chat over text and answer any questions. I absolutely love it. And you're definitely active on LinkedIn. So it's a great way to do it. And I'll make sure all of that's in the show notes. And of course, come back this Tactical Friday. We're going to break apart how we can become this top tier, top 1% communicator. Brendan, I appreciate your time, my friend. Likewise. Thanks for having me. 
Thanks for tuning in to this episode of the Tactical Leadership Podcast. And I hope you got a ton of value out of what we talked about today. I also want to remind you that this show is brought to you by Night Protection Services. If you're a leader in a small to mid-sized business that does five to $10 million a year in revenue and want to improve retention costs, which could actually add up to being twice your employee's salary, all through creating a safer work environment and saving up to 25% in insurance costs, be sure to visit nightprotectionllc.com.